Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. It's a massacre. They say the Cakefield River was full of bloody black bodies that day. That black people couldn't find their way. That black men died from gunshots in their backs. That black women ran to the swamps across the tracks. That very smart and bold black men were put on the train and given a free ride out of town where they were told to remain. They said that the dead bodies were left in the streets. The foul smell was so strong that buzzards circled for weeks. That black babies cried and moaned for their fathers and a bite to eat. That black folks lost all their savings and were left helpless and beat. It had to be done, said the white people who started it. They loved their town until the blacks tried to change it. They took over the city to restore their heritage, they said. They were heroes to many who wanted uppity folks dead. Some folks still don't see anything wrong with what they did, or that any harm was done to the ones who ran and hid. 
Serious damage was done to the soul of the town. That's why folks want to turn it around. Now is the time to make up for the crime, to help our children learn from our mistake, to ensure that there will be no more 1898. Before Tulsa, before Rosewood, Wilmington, North Carolina. Wilmington on Fire, tonight at Our Common Ground with Christopher Everett, the filmmaker. I'll be listening for you. Thank you for tuning in.
uh, on tomorrow, and uh, we want to certainly send out a very uh, joyful thank you to all of the men in our community who are fathers and grandfathers, uncles who stood in when there was no father, nephews and brothers who stood in when there was no father. Our our heartfelt thanks goes out to all of you men who have done what was needed to be done to ensure that the children of our community throughout the generations have had the nurturing of honorable, decent black men. Thank you so very much. Uh, we hope you've got your seats. We um, are running out of seats up in our common ground. I do want to talk to you about a number of things before we're joined by Christopher Everett uh, because I am really excited. Um, when he started this project, he was our guest and became an Our Common Ground voice. The film is now touring across the country and we're going to talk about what that means, what that means for school children, because this was a history that was not supposed to be told. Um, I guess uh, all of you lost heart on the uh, revolution because everybody is calling for Bernie Sanders to do something that he's saying he's not going to do, and that is step aside before the Democratic National Convention. Good for him. Uh, we are hoping that the propaganda wall against Bernie Sanders uh, is understood by all of you out there, that this is a man who is articulating a great deal of the priorities that we have always had for our families and our communities, economic and social justice, um, doing way with regulations that have empowered the systemic and institutionalized privilege of the rich against working people in this country. So uh, we're, we're glad that Bernie's hanging in there. Uh, other news that we're coming into the broadcast tonight about with um, on the Orlando shootings, the government is finally admitting that this person, this shooter, Marine, Omar Marine, um, probably has no connections to ISIS or uh, any Islamic terrorist group out there that he was just talking smack uh, and it's really interesting how much energy we have spent over the last week since we went off of the air last week um, that we've had to spend a whole week posturing about what he was all about. And the fact is that he was really a closet homosexual uh, who hated himself to the extent that he had to also hate others like him. Uh, he targeted people of color, and he targeted people who were presumably, in his 
mattered mine, nattered mine, um, uh, gay and home and and homosexual. The other thing that I love that's going on in the news right now, many of you call her um, Elizabeth Liz. Well, up here in Massachusetts, we call her Elizabeth. Elizabeth Warren is calling out the challenge to the Hillary Clinton for president staff and saying to them, don't screw this up. We've got him by the tail. Do not screw it up. Good for her. Just good for her. I want to um, ask you to make way for seats for our guests, and I certainly... I certainly welcome all of you newcomers to Our Common Ground and thank all of you out there who particularly spend time to uh, support and promote our program. So thank you very, very much for that. Don't forget to subscribe to our Facebook page. You know, we have five uh, Facebook pages. We have a, a Facebook page for the Alpha Show. We have a Facebook page for TruthWorks Network, we have a Facebook page called the Reparations Reader, uh, which is nothing but information designed to help people understand the import and the importance and the and what you need to know about call for reparations for descendants of sla- of the slaves of uh, the U.S slave system. Uh, We also have one called Working While Black, Black Women in the Prism, and we have one, uh, a Facebook page, which is also dedicated to having information for uh, parents, for educators, for community activists having to do with the school to prison uh, pipeline. So if you subscribe to Our Common Ground Facebook page, you will be able to have access to all of those pages. And don't forget, our website also provides uh, loads of information about our programming, about black history, black culture. Uh, we um, turn around very, very important pieces, what I call lunchbox reading and must-reads on our website at ourcommonground.com. So we hope you're in your seats. Uh, we have given you ample time to get settled. Uh, we will be taking a break um, during the program, two breaks during the program, so you can take your bathroom break and get your your um, drinks and whatever you're taking partaking in during the program because this is history. This is history. We want you to sit back and really understand. I, I've got a word for you tonight. Okay, everybody get out their their notebooks. Extra extrapolation. 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 E X T R A P O L A T I O N. And the definition of this word, you hear me, I use it a lot, is an estimation of a value placed on extending 
a known sequence of values or facts beyond the area that is certainly known. And why is this word, Janice, important tonight? The word is important tonight because we are talking about a history, a sequence of historical events that have led us to Ferguson, Baltimore, Chicago, Oakland, where this week uh, they have had to oust three police chiefs because of their behavior in the performance of their jobs. So if you extrapolate an act or an instance of inferring an unknown from something that is known, you will begin to understand the Wilmington Massacre in the con- in the context of where we are today. Many of you will sit back and say, well, we- this hasn't happened in America in a long time. Oh, hell yes, it happened. Wilmington Massacre, which happened over 100 years ago in 1898, happened before Tulsa, before Rosewood, before Oklahoma City, before, and some of you may not understand that the L.A. riots was a massacre. And massacres happen not only when people die, But when whole communities are wiped out, the history and traditions of those communities, the culture of those communities, and if you look in any major city, what's gentrification? Extrapolate. Come on. Stay with me. Extrapolate the wave of gentrification that you see in this country, the wave of young black people being placed in prison camps and labor camps, the wave of moving black people out of the center of urban settings, They give them Section 8 vouchers so they can go to the suburbs. Extrapolate. Just extrapolate. The Wilmington Massacre was a bloody attack on the African-American community by a white mob with the support of the North Carolina Democratic Party. Wilmington, North Carolina was a port city. Wilmington, North Carolina was a black settlement. And this film details this little-known bloody massacre against an all-black township in North Carolina in 1898. And I want to thank my brother, Chris Everett, for joining us tonight once again. Chris, welcome back. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to thank you, and I want my audience to know, I, I'm pretty blessed. <laughs> I got to see this film 
on my 62-inch or whatever it is. It's mighty big. (laughs) (laughs) Television sitting in my den. And so what did you say? It is fabulous. It is so, I mean, um, my grandson, everybody, I mean, nobody moved. I was afraid. I was afraid that people were going to be going into the kitchen or moving around or whatever. Yeah, falling asleep. I had, <laughs> I had nine people, and nobody moved. It was like nobody was breathing except for my grandson says, uh-oh, Nani's getting ready to cry. It oh, wow. is fantastic. Thank it you. is it is you have done a wonderful job and when you were on the program uh in 2014 as you began this project and you were really struggling you were toward the end of getting it all together before you, whatever yes. filmographers do when they put the final thing together it is just yes. fantastic oh thank you um thank you. i have i have viewed it three times now cuz i do that um, I always have to watch something that I really like by myself. Yeah. But um, I, I'm just so proud of you, and I'm so thankful to you and all of the people that came together to do this this film, to document, to dramatize, to underscore the horror of black people surviving in America. So thank you so very much. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I, 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 we have been blessed as a community to have you have this brainchild. Now, there are many people in our audience tonight who weren't with us in 2014, so tell us how you came to being compelled to do this particular story. Well, I would say I came up with the concept back in like 2010. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and in 2010, I had just finished up a um, a little documentary fundraising, like a fundraising documentary for a school called the Lawrenceburg Institute. And the Lawrenceburg Institute is a historical black boarding and day school in my hometown of Lawrenceburg, North Carolina. And while I was doing that and doing some research, I kept running into the white supremacy movement in North Carolina. And within that research, I kept running into what happened in 1898 in Wilmington. And so I was fascinated by that history because I never really heard about it. No one, you know, I never learned anything about it in school. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing Rosewood by John John Singleton, I think back in 96, 97. I remember seeing things about Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I was, you know, shocked and fascinated that I never heard about the Wilmington Massacre. And it happened right here in my home state of North Carolina. So that kind of intrigued me, and I looked up, you know, saw that no one actually did a f- actual feature-length documentary project or any type of film project on it. So I, I said to myself right then and there that I want to tackle this, and I want to make this my first project. I just started my film production company, and I wanted to start it off with something that was meaningful, something that I was passionate about, and something that was different. And so I decided to, you know, do Wilmington on Fire. I came up with the title, um, and I just ran with it. And <clears throat> along the way, by putting it together, I ran into people like Larry Thomas, um, who hooked me up with a lot of the other people there in the film, like Alex Manley's grandson, 
Thomas C. Miller's great-granddaughter, and a few other scholars like Professor Sandy Darity as well. So it was just a combination of getting all these people together, and I think we, you know, turned out a great film. It, you, 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 you certainly did. Now, how many people worked on 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 the research of this? You know, one of the the things that uh, is striking is the history, the political history, and the way in which the North Carolina Democratic Party was a part of this, this guy Waddell. Um, Well, it was, you know, not only it was Waddell, but it was uh, a whole bunch of other people. Uh, You had Waddell, who was a major player. You had um, William Barry McCoy, who was also a major player. Um, Walker Taylor, George Roundtree, um, several members of the Keenan family. Um, so, if the names that I'm that I'm mentioning right now, a lot of people might not might not be familiar with them. But if you're from Wilmington or live in Wilmington now, listening, mm-hmm. you know exactly who I'm talking about. Because mm-hmm. a lot of those names that I just mentioned, they're 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 their um, descendants are very you know prominent. Those are prominent names throughout the city of Wilmington and several places throughout North Carolina as well. Um, and a lot of, you know, those people actually did the massacre. And what's fascinating about it, just doing the research, and um, you, when you saw the film, you saw the white guy that's in the film, Kit Chatfield, who, yes. done, he, who has done, you know, outstanding research on his own over the years. And he talks about how a lot of these people, used to, they actually fought in the Civil War for the Confederacy. And that was a major part because to understand 1898, you have to go back to the Civil War. And that was really what kind of made, kind of fueled the fire for these people to do the actual coup in Wilmington. Because, like I said, a lot of them fought for the Confederacy. A lot of them had major ranking throughout the Confederate Army. You know, when you Mm -hmm. look at the history and the background of a lot of people who did the massacre, either a lot of them were like majors, colonels, and everything, and fought in some of the major battles in the Civil War. So that whole thing is very connected um, with the history of the Civil War as well. Mm-hmm. So to understand 1898, you have to understand the history of the Confederacy as well. Before we go to, and I, I, want, I do want to play um, a clip uh, which really summarizes the event and the film, but before before we go there, uh, one of the things I'm being bombarded uh, by email right now uh, <laughs> about people asking about a schedule of where they can get the where they can see the film. Is it yeah. is it going to be on? Are you going to eventually put this film online? Yes, and um, actually, I actually um, um, I just got back home today because I actually had a double screening in Wilmington today. Actually. Um, we had a yeah, I saw that. Day. Yeah, it was it was real cool. But the DVD, I'm going to release the DVD in Blu-ray on November 10th. And the reason why I'm doing it on November 10th because that's the actual anniversary, anniversary. of the mass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to release that. But we're going to probably take start taking pre you know pre-sale orders in September. Uh huh. Are you going to do that? You're going to do that from your website, or you're going to do that from a large retailer like it's Amazon. It's going to be um, the website, WilmingtonOnFire.com, and also Amazon as well. We're going to be connected with Amazon as well. And, okay, I'm signing you know, what, up. All right. 
Great, great. Um, yeah, that should be probably around around mid to end of September. We'll start to take a pre pre sale orders, but I'm going to release it digitally, where you can uh-huh. rent it and buy the digital copy. I'll probably have that for going on sale in October. So uh-huh. are October you, is when are you, you planning on doing something with Netflix or HBO or Amazon Prime or any of those people? You know, I have an idea a day. I'm in a minute. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, I'm weighing, I'm weighing all the options. You know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business, and you have to really see what's really going to work best for your interests as well. And also, well, I think how can everybody I actually... out there ought to be. If you have a Netflix subscription or a Fire subscription, you ought to be writing to these people and saying to them, <laughs> "Yes, tell them." Oh, you say, want yes. See, you know, there has to be an interest. You know, for yes. you know, I, I guess yes. tell every, tell everybody out there if they got HBO. An HBO subscription or a Netflix or Amazon subscription, hit them up. Say we want Wilmington on fire when it comes out. Absolutely, and I'm encouraging everyone to do that. You know, you all get lazy. And, Chris, let me just take a second to say we got to do better. Yeah, you're right. We have got to do better in supporting what is in our interest. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I looked at. Right. I I just finished looking at uh, the five-part series OJ and Made in America, and last oh, week yeah. I was I was asking the question, what was this new interest all of a sudden in in OJ Simpson? Yeah. But uh, one of the things that it occurred to me, I, I still don't have the answer is why is ESPN doing this? I The whole time I was watching this thing, I was saying, why are they doing this? Uh, these racist cops are getting a chance to pass on their propaganda in in this in this film. Um, and uh, I, I know the director. I've known him. I, I knew him from the day that he was born. Um, and I'm saying, why did he choose to do this opportunity? And we can talk about that. But I do yeah. want the audience to be able to uh, get a sense of what you're missing if you have not seen Wilmington on Fire. Ha- has it been in, in Myrtle Beach? And uh, have you? Where have you gone with the film? All right. Um, well, <clears throat> let's start with this. Like we first premiered this thing. I would say we premiered it in November, this past November, and that was the premiere. Yes. It was November 14th, and we premiered at the Kukulors Film Festival. Um, Kukulors is a real big film festival in North Carolina. It's one of the biggest in North Carolina. It's been around 21 years, and they they have some big, big films, you know, that come to their festival, so it's a big deal. Um, we premiered it there. I was very nervous, very anxious, you know, of, you know, the reception and everything. I didn't really expect, I expected maybe 100 people, 200 at the most to show up. And guess what? We um we, we sold it out like three days before we broke the film festival's record for most attended screen. Wow. That's, yeah. that's terrific. And we, we, we pretty much made history, you. and everybody was talking about it and everything. And, and it's just been rolling ever since. Right after that, I decided to rent a venue in Wilmington and do a double screening we packed it out for both shows. Then after that, I did another screening in Wilmington at Keenan Auditorium at on the campus of UNCW in Wilmington. And that place holds a thousand seats and we put in about eight hundred for that one. 
And then after that, did a great screening in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, at um, Crossroads Charter High School. We had about 300 people in there. We had to turn away about 50 for that. Went on to do Durham, North Carolina, the Haytai Heritage Center. We packed that out, 400 people. Goldsboro, North Carolina. Um, we've, I've been to Chicago, um, screen at Northwestern. Not really Chicago. It's like the, the suburbs of Chicago, Chicago, Evanston, Northwestern University. Had a screening there, successful. Um, where else have we been? I've been to Beaufort, South Carolina. I've done a screening with Queen Quet down in Beaufort, South Carolina, back in, I think, March. And we're doing also doing another one with Queen Quet in Charleston, um, August 5th at the uh, Gullah Geechee Music and Movement Festival. We're definitely going to wow. have a screening down there in Charleston, August mm-hmm. 5th. So we've just been traveling all over, um, yeah. really yeah. all over North I Carolina. Have, I happened yeah. to go to uh, an event, and I was talking, and we had just seen the film like two days before, and I, everybody that I talked to, I was saying, you know, because there were a lot of, like, headmasters and principals mm-hmm. and teachers, and I and I was saying, uh, I, I even said to the mayor of Boston, this is something that you can do yes. to foster and be authentic about your empowerment of black history, black education, black culture, and... It is, uh, and and I said, and I said to him, you know, the word authentic means real, and he laughed. (laughs) So we're going to share with you right now, um, a bit from the film, so that you can get a real good sense of what this film is doing, because school children are seeing this film all over North Carolina, and I'm suggesting that if you want to do something as a parent or a grandparent i'm i'm going to try to sponsor this at um at one of my grandchildren's schools and i have talked to them about doing it we have okay. to empower this kind of education to our children and our community right. it's a massacre Wilmington on fire. It's a massacre. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 was a bloody attack on the African-American community by a heavily armed white mob with the support of the North Carolina Democratic Party on November 10, 1898 in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. It is considered one of the only successful examples of a violent overthrow of an existing government and left countless numbers of African-American citizens dead and exiled from the city. This event was the springboard for the white supremacist movement and established Jim Crow segregation throughout the state of North Carolina and the American South. Wilmington was was North Carolina's largest city in the 1890s. Uh, and uh, in comparison with other portions of the state, it was a relatively prosperous, prosperous city, uh, well managed. Uh, but one of the most significant things about Wilmington was that it was a majority black city. And uh, in the political climate where you had uh, a fusion party 
that combined the populist party and the Republican party in the state in a kind of a in a coalition. Um, Wilmington's political leadership was dominated by representatives of the of the fusion effort. Um, so it was a majority black city, which meant that you had a significant number of, of uh, a significant role for blacks in determining who the office holders were in the city, but you also had a significant number of blacks who actually held office. And uh, one of the most significant effects of the massacre in 1898 was to reverse the black majority and to turn Wilmington into a white majority city and uh, to drive out uh, the, uh, the fusion office holders whether black or white, and, uh, and, and completely changed the political face of the city. Uh, but also it meant that you gave a signal to the rest of the state and the rest of the South that you would not have any significant black presence in the political process uh, anymore. It's a massacre. Well, it's very interesting that although American history I have yet to open an American history book, especially those that would be in K-12 and read Wilmington, North Carolina on any page. But Wilmington, North Carolina, I think, has been left out of the books because it has sort of been whitewashed or whited out. Wilmington was such a place of independence for people of African descent in the state of North Carolina that that story has yet to truly be told. You had a lot of people who were well-educated at this time in Wilmington, right before the Wilmington race riot, as they call it, or Wilmington massacre, all these names it's called today, took place. You had people owning businesses in the heart of the city, not off on a side street, but the main drag, as we would say down south. Here it was, you had black business next to another black business next to another black business. You have Alex Manley running the newspaper so that there is actually a voice that can go out to people. People can subscribe to it. People who've left Wilmington and are elsewhere can get a hold of paper and know what's going on at home. You have the churches. You have fraternal organizations. You have all of this that the people are saying, look at who we are. And this is not even a whole generation out of enslavement. And so there is a thriving black community going on that is powerful. And so that was not replicated everywhere all over North Carolina. They figured out that he who owns and controls has the power. And so when slavery ended in the 1860s, about 1866, at that point in time, you had, they learned something else from the radical Republicans who came out and said that, you, that black people in America can only be two, two, one or two things. Either you're going to be slaves or you're going to be free. To be free, you must minimally, these blacks must minimally, five million, almost five million blacks must minimally have 40 acres of mule and $100 given to them coming out of slavery if they're going to play this game. Because at that time in slavery, black folk were the primary generators of wealth on the earth. This country had invested over $8 billion just into slavery. That was more money than all the businesses and all levels of government put together. And, they, and, and black folk as slaves, they knew the importance of wealth and owning and controlling. And they wanted that 40 acres and a mule and $100. And, uh, and Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and Benjamin said that on the floor of the United States Congress in the 1865 Civil Rights Law. Give black folk 40 acres of mule and 
and Andrew Johnson came when he became the president after Lincoln's assassination. He killed the bill. They came back again in 1866 again and said, black folks have to have resources to be able to compete. It's a massacre. Someone can steal daily. So what was the use in a park for us to just sit and remember? I want to remember, but I also want to progress to the future. It is also important that as they come up with a list of requirements for reparations, that they don't be too quick to look for a financial payout. Instead, they should look for unlimited access to certain services and total control over certain industries. When you talk about reparations, because the cost of the trauma was so extensive and unending, the payment that is to be received, your compensation, should also be excessive and unending. You see, what if black people never had to pay a property tax as a result of having their property taken? That's perpetual forever. What if our children automatically had free access to the universities in the state? Forever, that's perpetual. What if we were given exclusive right to certain industries within the state? What if we were given exclusive control over certain lands within that city? That's perpetual. Be careful about money. Money runs out. Blood everywhere, a massacre. Women is on fire. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Okay, I was on mute. Uh, Christopher, one of the things that makes it very clear about this film is that it is clearly documents one of the events that has to be part of the argument for reparations for for descendants of U.S. slavery. In all of the discussions that you have had and all of the panels that you have had in, in, in viewing this film, has there been discussion beyond um, just what happened to what is the how how are how is this how are these people restituted yeah, yeah we've had several <laughs> <laughs> yes yes we've had we've had uh we've had several discussions um a lot of the um a lot of the screens we've had we've actually had panel discussions afterwards in very in-depth panels as well, but that's because that's that's what the whole film is really about. Um, when I did this film, I just didn't want to do a film about okay, this happened to us as a history. I wanted this the, I wanted this film to show why reparations is needed, not only for the descendants of the Wilmington massacre and the black community in Wilmington, but just use this as a way to help push for reparations to black people in America. Period. Because mm-hmm. with the Wilmington thing, you can make the case for that, and it just it, it connects the dots to so many other things as well. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's Jim mm-hmm. Crow segregation, slavery, Tulsa, Rosewood, you know, and the list goes on and on. You know, so it's 
So we've had, you know, in some of our um, discussions, we've had heavy, heavy discussions and about reparations, compensation. You know, what can be done? How should it, you know, how should we go by doing it? You know, so that that discussion is actually is is very is very surprising because a lot of people actually agree say yes something needs to be done, you know compensation reparations wise and I didn't I didn't expect that you know I expected uh-huh. the opposite but uh-huh. what's shocking uh-huh. is that a lot of people are saying after watching the film I think that's what gets people I think it's the film when you watch the film and we lay everything down with facts documentation and you hear certain stories and. As some of the people are reading certain letters and things like that, you can't help but deny that African American people in America are owed something. Mhm. You're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. It does it does it is one it is a key tool in making mm-hmm. the argument. And recently, um, I have been involved in conversations with groups of people who are organizing around how we support a movement for reparations in this country. And one of the things that I have suggested is that this film be used as a centerpiece uh, for discussions as we do a reparations tour, because there are many people in our community who oppose reparations for stupid reasons. And you can't fix stupid. (laughs) You can only... (laughs) You can only try to shatter it with with an information and knowledge. Um, but some of the stupid stuff that I hear people responding to is just crazy. And and the thing that I like, uh, you have Dr. Claude Anderson, Dr. Umar Johnson, Marquetta Kett of uh, the Gula Geechee Nation. Um definitely impacted by what happened in in Wilmington because many of the citizens of the Gullah Geechee Nation are descendants of um the people of 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 Wilmington North Carolina um and then uh you also have Thomas Remy who is a descendant and a native of of Wilmington, and I just love the fact that uh, he's a jazz man. But anyway, that's aside from the, that's not really aside from the point because um, if you, I, I was thinking while I was viewing the film, if you think about it, if you really think about it, people who have come through these kinds of events and they know it firsthand from their families they be, continue to be stakeholders generation after generation. And that is how you hold a community together. But let's talk about, you know, for instance, um, Dr. William Sandy Darity, who is one of my favorite people in the entire world, is um, undoubtedly a person who can understand and who has written intensely about reparations for descendants of U.S. slaves. And he is the president of the American Association of Economists. He is the public policy 
and Economy Chair at Duke University and a, and 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 ha, holds a seat at Stanford University School of Economics. So, I mean, who has the argument against someone who has actually studied the economic impact of this kind of of um, of event? Um, I am a descendant from two kinds of events, and I call it racial terrorism, post-slavery racial terrorism. Uh, One is that uh, I have uh, an uncle, uh, my my mother's oldest brother, uh, in an effort, my grandfather put forth an effort to help the people of Rosewood rebuild, and he had a lumber yard in West Palm Beach, Florida, and had his son deliver lumber up to Rosewood, Florida, uh, during the rebuilding uh, effort. And on his way back, he was captured by white supremacists, and we imagine it was the Ku Klux Klan as we know it, and that's another whole s- s- subject about if it's only the Ku Klux Klan uh they are not exclusive in the white supremacy terrorism campaign, but he was uh, lynched, was was dragged from his truck on his way back and lynched. And then there was the event. And see, all of you out there, I'm sure you have heard from your folks, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, stories that are similar to, to to what happened in Wilmington in your own communities. It happened throughout the South everywhere. The Donald Trump's wonderful Palm Beach, Florida estate sits on land that was once my grandfather's pineapple fields. Wow. And that's where the black people lived. They lived on the island. And um, when Henry Flagler decided to bring up the Florida East Coast Railroad from New York down to Miami, um, they discovered this island. And they decided, wait, 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 this is a great place. All my wealthy friends from New York and Connecticut can come down here and vacation for the winter, build houses on this beautiful island. And they burned all of the black people out. They burned all of, my grandfather was a pineapple farmer. They burned out 28 acres of pineapples. Wow. So here is another Wilmington. That people don't know about. It's not written in into our history books, and that's what I want to also talk to you about, Christopher. Yeah. Is there an effort to get the Wilmington story and the film, as you take the film into schools, to talk about how we revisit the history that we tell in our history books for school children, and also in our African and Black Studies history books? Well, I know one thing, because um, um, I'm actually going to do another part of Wilmington on Fire, but there's still, 
so much more to the story that I haven't told in the first one. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the things we're going to talk about in the second one is why hasn't this history, why isn't it being taught throughout, especially throughout North Carolina's public school system? I mean, there's, there's a reason for that. Um, back in 2006, 2008, they actually were trying to push for things like that. Um, you know, they developed a race riot commission report, and they developed a series of bills to try to get, you know, try to get the North Carolina legislature to pass through, to implement. One of those things was reparations for actual direct descendants who could prove a loss. Another one was putting this in the school system throughout North Carolina. And it was a whole bunch of things, creating a black business district in Wilmington. It was a whole plethora of things. None of this mm-hmm. stuff got passed through. You know, they couldn't get the thing about teaching it in the school system. And back then in North Carolina, we had a majority North Carolina legislature and still couldn't get nothing passed through. They couldn't even get an apology passed. Mm-hmm. So that's really mm-hmm. one of the hardest things about getting certain things in the school system. Like, we work with certain schools of actually doing certain doing a screening at their school because the the film is really it's the age appropriate I guess the the age that we've kind of tested out is eighth grade on up and that's what we've been doing but some schools are cool with it some aren't you know I know I had um, one school in North Carolina they had reached out to me one time the teacher was all gung ho for it I said yeah we'll come through and show the film and have a discussion afterwards. And then a few weeks later, I think their principal, you know, kind of, I guess, got nervous for what the parents was going to say. So he kind of counseled it and had to, you know, the kids had to get, actually get permission slips, you know, signed. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, yeah, but we yeah. never, I, but they never reached back to me, so I guess it was a no-go. So those are the kind of things that happen sometimes, you know, when you're just trying to actually do a screening, you know, per se, in in the school. Uh-huh one screening, uh-huh. but actually have it taught throughout the school system, you know, that has to go through you, you know, through your legislature. And that's, that's but see, here, here, here is a point uh, that I would like to make to this audience, and our number is 347-838-9852. If you'd like to talk with us about Wilmington on Fire, about the – 1889 Wilmington Massacre about massacres extrapolation folks the massacres that continue to happen um, takeovers gentrification I mean there was a takeover you gotta understand there was a Ferguson, Missouri was an all black city primarily uh, but it was taken over in terms of its governance by white folks who decided, oh, this should be ours. But in any case, uh, I would like to see, a, even if it's nothing more than a 10-page booklet about Wilmington on fire put in the hands of school children. Now, if if this film is being shown, Christopher, in in a school, children should, I mean, you don't have to wait to put it in their history books. You, you just put it in their hands. But that shouldn't be on you. That should be on us. Yes, you're right. You're right. And, and I think that, and that's what I'm 
you know, I'm trying to push at a, a lot of these screenings. But I'm but back to your your you know your question about doing a curriculum. I'm actually working on a curriculum, you know, for like eighth grade students, high school, and, and college as well. You know, I'm getting all that stuff together now because because I want you know people whether it's you know children, high school students, college students, you know, when they watch this film, you know, I want them to have a, a good guideline to go by as well. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, but you know, we can't and also, we can't really it. rely on this system to teach our kids. <laughs> you know, so we want to do it ourselves. I think you know, once when the DVD comes out, or if we're doing a screening in your area, you need to bring your family to come see it. Uh, when the DVD comes out, it needs to be in your DVD library. Buy you a copy of it. Sit around with the family and y'all watch it. You know, and just you know, talk about it afterwards. I think it's required viewing. For everyone in our community. Absolutely. You know, for instance, if out there, and our number is 347-838-9852, if you want your children to have a in-depth and full understanding of black history in this country, and you have a youth group or have access to a youth group, then it's on you. We have got to stop relying on what people do for us and start doing what we do for ourselves. So that means that you take whatever I have on my, on what, you go to the website and you just copy all the stuff from the website because the history and about the film is right on the website. And you put it in a Word document and you make it a booklet and you, and, and, and you organize your why, your boys girls clubs, your tennis group, your children's dance class, whatever. The sixth grade class, the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, ninth grade class of your the school where your children go and have a party. If the school doesn't want to have it done, then you have it at the boys girls club or the community center or what the church, whatever. We got a church on every damn corner in this country, in our community. The church right across the street from the from the liquor store. Have it at the liquor store. I don't care. I, I guess you can't have it at the liquor store because you can't take the kids in the liquor store. But one of the things that we need to do is we need to learn to do for self. That we have to. I'm sorry, Chris. Just. Bear with me for a minute while I got this uh, opportunity. Right, right. Yeah. Um, we have got to understand the they, you know, the they y'all always talking about? Well, they, quote, unquote, are not going to do for your children what your children need. The, the they are not going to empower you for the good and the interest of the collective that while we are dispersed from here to there, the corner and in the corner and whatever my grandmother used to say, whatever, we have got to hold it together because guess what? After Hillary Clinton becomes president or whatever, or Donald Trump, God forbid, oh, my God, becomes president, you're not going to get any more than you've been getting. But you, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. 
Christopher Everett, thank you so very much. Wilmington on fire. We've got to take a break. When I come back, I want to talk about your personal experience in putting this film together. Our number is 347-838-9852. I'm Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. Broadcast at a time. How do you wake up the entire African American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends, and we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. No matter what, know your values. No matter what, know you matter. The I Declare Show, home of Real Raw Right Now Talk Media. I Declare a Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare a Show. Real, raw, right now, talk media. I Declare it. The I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I declare it's real, raw, and right now. The I Declare Show with India Declare. You don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another jet fight. As they the best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete, urban progressive politics, politics, politics. Friday nights at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in. Politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. Get 
100% of all this nation's wealth, resource, privileges, and controls all levels of government into the hands of the dominant white society. And it was very effective. It did an excellent job. And slavery, slavery came into existence in the 1500s. It had a very specific purpose. Slavery was an economic issue, not a social issue. And so black folk learned that even as slaves, they might not have been well-educated, but they weren't stupid. They figured out that he who owns and controls has the power. And so when slavery ended in the 1860s, about 1866, at that point in time, you had, they learned something about some of the radical Republicans who came out and said that, you, that black people in America can only be two, two, one or two things. Either you're going to be slaves or you're going to be free. Oh, fuck! It's still dead. The business community in the community is still dead. Blacks in Wilmington are still dead. So what was the use in a park for us to just sit and remember? I want to remember, but I also want to progress to the future. Blood everywhere, a massacre, women's on fire. This is our common ground, and we are not anonymous. Speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. tonight at Our Common Ground, talking about the film, Wilmington on Fire, with the filmmaker, filmographer, Christopher Everett. Thank you so very much. Our number is 347-838-9852. We're at the top of the hour, and we want you to give us a call. Uh, Ask us about the film. Ask us some questions. But before we do that, don't forget, Alpho is back on the Alpho Show Friday nights, 10 p.m., serving hot grits with his politics, and he was on fire. If you missed his show on Friday, you can find it on demand at TruthWorks Network, blogtalkradio.com backslash TruthWorks, or you can find it on the Alpha Show Facebook page, or you can find the link on all of our outlets, our apps. We've got the TruthWorks app. We've got a Our Common Ground app. We've got we've got it for you if you want it. If you don't want it, just email me and tell me you don't want it, okay? And then we can be straight. I am really I don't usually bring you all on a, on, in on foolishness, but I got some foolishness tonight because people tell me I'm too to um Christopher, you know, people tell me I'm too serious. But here we go. I've got this brownie sitting here. The brownie's been sitting here since eight thirty and I'm not supposed to be eating brownies. So if anybody wants to call in at three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two and encourage me to eat the brownie or encourage me not to eat the brownie because at midnight I've got to have an answer because it's either going straight to the brownie or the brownie's going straight to the trash. So we want to hear from you, 347-838-9852. The whole issue in Wilmington on Fire is about the terror 
in which we have survived. And Christopher, one of the things I want to ask you, and I didn't ask you when you were here with us while you were in the midst of this, but as a young man, having taken on this project, how did you respond to all of the things that you found in your research, the stuff that you had to put in your into put into the film, this whole notion of being part of a people who was just so vilified, so hated that people were willing to kill and burn down an entire township. Well, I know going into it, you know, I was very, you know, uh, yes, I was just. I kind of just went into it of just you know like a no holds barred type of attitude, meaning that I looked at it as my people, you know, African Americans back then, you know, they created a lot of things and did a lot of outstanding things, with you know when the the, the deck was stacked against them, you know, totally. So I'm like, mm-hmm. yo, they could create Black Wall Streets and start businesses and, and really do their thing, you know, there's no excuse for me to, you know, to not make this movie, you know, per se. And it came mm-hmm. with sacrifice. You know, they did the same things. They had to sacrifice. So I took it on myself to do the same thing. So I just try to channel a lot of that energy from my ancestors, you know, to kind of get through this whole process. And the research that I put in and a lot of the research from other people that are in the film, you know, it was like going to college for free for, like, three years. You know, sitting down with people like Professor Garrity and picking his mind and Larry Rennie Thomas and Kent Chaffield and Dr. Umar and Claude Anderson and Queen Quit. You know, these are people that, you know, that, you know, colleges, you know, need to actually have, you know, or, you know, it's like, because even my camera guy, he, he even said the same thing. He said, that's why... This project has been one of his favorite all-time projects because, like, you're getting this knowledge and education really for free, you know, and unfiltered, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. and you're getting all of it, like, right here. And there's so much that I really couldn't even put in the film. And that's why I decided to do, like, two more parts to it because there's so much that I want people to realize how in-depth and interest that this whole 1898 massacre was and how it affected mm-hmm. not only Wilmington and not only the state of North Carolina, but the entire country as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that there are some things which, as an activist, um, that have formed the way in which I respond to numerous things, um, um, things that... Uh, I remember on the, the night that Martin Luther King had been assassinated, I was standing on a hill where I could look down pretty much and see most of the black community, and I witnessed all of the fires. Now, Boston was not a place that uh, had riots in the sense because James Brown came to town that night, and the mayor, Mayor White, used... James Brown concert to kind of like uh, control. It was it was really riot control, um, and um, I happened to be in on some of those discussions that night 
about whether or not the concert, the James Brown concert at the old Boston Garden, would go ahead or what, and listen to the conversation of the black leadership really identifying it as riot control. But I know that there are some things for which I can never forget as I looked down on the fires. I knew what was happening. I couldn't see what was happening, but I knew what was happening. And it was kind of locked into my heart. You said something very, very important. You talked about serving the ancestors, honoring your ancestors. And we do a lot of talking here at Our Common Ground about the ancestral imperative. And one of the things that this film does is it moves you to understand what is inside you. There are some there are some memories and some things locked inside your spirit as a black person. And and most of the people who listen to this show know I call it every black person has their come to Jesus moment. And um I think that this film does that. And I was thinking of you as I watched and wondering how much of this you had to absorb and how painful it must have been. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, just like when I was doing research and, you know, and reading the letter, especially I would say what really kind of hurt me the most and got to me the most, when reading certain letters from African Americans back then, of reading letters of them pleading to come back home, you know, saying like with, um, I know with Thomas C. Miller's great-granddaughter, Faye Chaplin, you know, you've you probably seen this in the film. Yeah, in the film. reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when she was reading the letter that her great grandfather wrote, he he couldn't he wasn't even allowed to come back to Wilmington to go to his own mother's funeral. You know, and I know that 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 part right there touches a lot of people when they watch the movie. I know when I talk to a lot of people, yes. that really gets you know. Yeah. And yeah. in other letters that I've wrote, you know, read over my you know few years of researching and doing the film, countless of letters of people begging to come back. You know, what happened to that? You know, they're asking, where's my property? What happened to it? You know, why can't I come back to see what's going on with it? Or how's my family doing? Um, I had some relatives. I had a brother and sister. I haven't heard from them in two years. Where are they? So just those personal stories, those personal letters that are handwritten yeah. Yeah. by, you know, black people. That really, really, that, those are the things that really touched me, reading mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go to our phones. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Christopher. 337, you're on the air with Christopher Everett, Wilmington on Fire. Thank you for your call. Hi. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for taking my call. How are you? Good. Excellent. You know, uh, my wife uh, had the privilege of meeting Mr. Muhammad Ali a few, uh, well, it's about two decades ago now. Uh, back in the 80s, and she wrote a brief essay on it, and um, I think it actually relates to what you're talking about in a weird way, and and she'd love to share it with you, if you'd allow that. Okay. Hang on, I'll get her to pick up the phone. Her name's Robin. Hello. Hey, Robin. How does your your experience with Muhammad Ali relate to Wilmington on Fire? She's going to read the essay for you, and I think you'll find out. In 1987, my buddy Don Bernstein and I headed to Atlantic City. 
I immediately noticed a line forming at one of the tables not far from where I was sitting. When the crowd parted, I saw what all the commotion wait, was wait, about. Wait, 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 wait. Are Hang you reading? Oh, okay, because it sounds like a recording. Well, she's reading, sorry. It's a bit static, oh. but no, she's, she's here in the room. Okay. Hello? Okay, yeah. go ahead. Is it okay? Can you hear her all right? Or are you following yes, the story? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. We'll pick up from where you are. But first on. I want you to tell me how this relates to the film, just in a few words before we read essays. Oh, I'm just about to get to that. Okay. Muhammad Ali was in the room. Amazed, I rose from my seat and went to him. He slid his arm around my waist. Muhammad, I told him. You're making me so wet. My bra- Okay. You see, wow. um, people don't have time. Wow. I knew something was wow. going on. Wow. Um, that's wow. how they want to break you, folks. Another way. It's another. Yeah. It's just simply another hey, way. Hey, ever since I released this film, I've ran into the same type of stuff. So. Well, yeah. usually, you know, we we I I think I've kind of um, um, fix my troll problem because mm. I usually have a lot of trolls coming through here, not necessarily in the phones, but especially in the in the chat room. But wow. when I, when he couldn't summarize for me, yeah, he got summarized. The thing it sounded like a recording. Yeah, it did sound like a recording. Yeah, well, hold on, man. So. Okay. Um, I you know, but this is this is how the Atlantic had a very interesting uh article this week called um America's Obsession with the Stupid. <laughs> and and th- this is the kind of thing that oh, yeah. you know I I just it's it's almost like um, well, you're going shopping. I have you ever had. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience, but I I, I jack people up. Um, <coughs> you're shopping and somebody comes up to you and says, "Oh, excuse me, but you know that sweater will require a special wash or something." And I turn around and say, "Why? Are you going to buy it? It's in my hand." Did I ask you for laundry instructions? (laughs) I mean, people are just so presumptuous as a result of of what they believe. And I was really interested how somebody had put together Muhammad Ali and this film, even though... Yeah, because I was interested in that, too. I'm like, hold on. I just (laughs) want to relate. And then he played the thing. I'm like, I know his wife doesn't sound like that. Yeah, it sounded like a computer-generated voice. Yeah, it sounded like one of those little, like, you know, automated systems or something. Yeah, we need a little, uh, we really need a little bit of that around um, our common ground. But, Chris, tell me about, uh, is the second part in production? Um, It's in pre-production right now. I'm going to start shooting in October. And I'm shooting. It's actually it's actually going to be two more parts. I'm shooting two and three at the same time, and I'm just going to break it up, you know, to two and yeah. three. 
But it's uh-huh. really going to go, the second one is going to be real great and interesting. Like the second one is pretty much going to be about what happened to African Americans after 1898. You know, what happened to Alex Manley? What happened to Thomas C. Miller and other prominent African American figures in Wilmington back then? Because we don't really, you know, we're, no. we're actually yeah. going to talk to more of their descendants as well to know more uh-huh. in depth, you know, what, yeah. you know, how their lives were affected, you know, because a lot of them were, were just changed psychologically as well for going yeah. through this this event. And also we're going to talk about some of the black townships that were created um, as a result of 1898, like Whitesboro, New Jersey, that is still a, a town today. And a lot of them still know that history of why their ancestors moved to Whitesboro back in uh-huh. you know, 1901, uh-huh. 1910, 1915. So those are the things we're going to kind of explore in the second one, and also the Gullah Geechee history that's been kind of erased in Wilmington as well yeah, as yeah. of 1898. So that's what the I second know one is really a woman going to deal with. who lived in Boston. Uh, she passed um, maybe about 15, 20 years ago. But um, she was a native of Wilmington, North Carolina. So when I met her, she was in her mid-70s, and she, and, and she had bought a farm in Wilmington. And one of the things that she told me was that she had bought this farm because she was going to return to Wilmington unlike members of her mother and father and grandparents had not been able to return yeah. to uh, Wilmington as a result of the massacre. It's really interesting. We've got another call, and I hope this doesn't go to the left. Three, two, one. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? There you go. <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> yeah, the Yahoos are, are out, and I guess they're getting ready for Father's Day. <laughs> I guess, man. Um, So I think that uh, one of the things that I thought about when I was watching the film was that um, should there be a reunion or has there ever been a reunion of the descendants of the massacre? They've been – it's been a reunion. I'm thinking about – I'm actually thinking about doing something like that, actually. Um, There's been – semi-reunion years ago, I'd say back in 2000 and 2006, 2004, they did an actual centennial. I think I think uh-huh. it was 98, actually. They did yeah, like a centennial. Yeah. They had people like Dr. Yeah. Manley and other descendants and scholars and people like that who, because the thing is, is that some people don't even know they're actual descendants of the 1898 Some yeah. A lot of them don't know now because the film is out. But really before this film, came, you know, have been has been, you know, traveling and actually screening, a lot of people didn't even know, you know. And yeah. then they started, they heard about the film, and they heard minor things throughout their family, but they just didn't really know, like, wow. Exactly, I'm yeah. I'm related to that guy. Yeah, there you were, uh, I had the same experience, except for my my family was directly related to the massacre, the burning of the sticks in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, yeah. But there were many people who had heard bits and pieces about it, and they didn't really know. And sometime around 
1969, right after Roots, uh, the yeah. original Roots, uh, a group of uh, pioneers of the new black West Palm, uh, West Palm Beach natives got together and wrote a book called The Mighty Banyan, uh, which told the stories of the families that lived in the sticks. Uh, which was the island of Palm Beach. We've got another caller, and it looks like it's going to go to the left, but I'm going to try it anyway. Three, two, one, you're on the air. All right, you just hung up on me, and I'm telling you I'm a legitimate caller. <laughs> How legitimate are you? Well, what car I'm are you ever, carrying tonight? I <laughs> I'm don't sorry. know. I was I'm as legitimate as I could be. I, I I was shocked that I got out two words and you hung up on me. So I don't know what to say about it. That's because we got a you. You were sounding a little Yahoo-y there. Uh, thank you for your call. Well, I've, I've I've been known to be a little Yahoo-y. I, I, that I will uh, attest to. But um, you know, I called in because I was just I was like blown back by that last caller because Muhammad Ali was such a great man and to have someone call in and, and say stuff like that I think is pretty uh, pretty low. Yeah, well we 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 just try not to make it too much fuss about it. I know because the guy he just passed on and I, I was a fan. I don't know if you were, but I I, I love what he did for a number of communities. Uh-huh. Um, have, did you know of the history of Wilmington, North Carolina? I'm getting uh, more uh, information on it now than I ever have, because I, I was not familiar before the show. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, so I'm learning you know, a lot. And one, of the things, one of the things I always try to point out to citizens of the United States is that when you try to when you try to exclude a certain part of history, everybody loses. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yes, I, you're I, right. And you know that's happened. Um, you can tell. I, I think that the Armenian genocide is one of the things uh, that that people have tried to deny for many years. There's been a number of things. I mean, there's still people that would deny the Holocaust, and it's. Um, I think it's a tactic for certain people to feel like they're living in their own ideal of what the world should be, and it's, it's not reality. Absolutely. But we want to thank you for being a new listener and hope you'll join us each uh, Saturday night at 10 p.m. We're always here. Absolutely. And I just want to say, you know, if my wife had the pleasure of meeting Muhammad, I'd ask him to fuck her tight little pussy and, you know, come on her tits. Six four six, you're on the air. Hey, hey, BJ, what, what, what is wrong with y'all, the Edgar brothers and sisters, man? Why do they gotta call up and mess with you every week? That ain't nobody. It's like Sister Doctor Stacy Patterson always having to snatch wigs, man. Why, why don't you just snatch a couple of wigs every now and then, man? You know this. This Neanderthal is needs to be beat up every chance you get to let him know that I'm a Neanderthal. But listen, I was calling about Muhammad Ali. My only issue with Muhammad Ali is Jay. That, Jay. Yeah. Yes. Why are you calling about Muhammad Ali? <laughs> no, no, no. Because I just want to say one thing. My issue is that um, you know, Elijah Muhammad. In all honesty, 
made Muhammad Ali. And for him to neglect his, you know, ability to make the man who he is in favor of a Neanderthal like Bill Clinton, it's painful. And the sad thing is that for some reason, black people feel that they have to cast aside our heroes just like the King family did to Harry Belafonte for these Neanderthals. And, and, you know, at some point in time, people like yourself are going to have to check these people because it's not right to our children and to history that they get away with that nonsense because when it's all said and done, history will reflect the truth. But in the process, it could cause so much damage to the self-esteem of our people. In the words of Dr. Um, oh God, I just, I just, I just. Don't have to moment on me, please, BJ. Okay, I just had one, but in the name, and he was a good friend of mine. <laughs> some will be saved, and some are not saved. That's all I can say about that. Well, listen. I'm let me, let me be ask ready. you something, Jay. Let me ask yeah. you something. You you got your youth group that you teach African history and all of those other kinds of activities that you have. Why don't you have Wilmington on fire to your youth group? Down there um, I, I think I think I may I think I may over over the summer. I think I may. Is there a DVD copy? Because I'm not. I, I have DVD seen it. is coming. It is coming. Okay, yes, so, yes, yes, so sir. DVD in November. Um, okay. What I was doing? Email me. Email me at um. You you on Facebook? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. Um, what uh, I was doing? Hit up Wilmington. Gonna... Just type in Wilmington on fire. So it's Facebook.com/slash Wilmington on fire. Facebook.com/slash Wilmington on fire. Send me an email, man. We can see if we can work out something. Okay. Let me ask you this. Now, in, in what respect are you dealing with this Wilmington? Are you dealing with it from the Wilmington 10 perspective with Ben Chavis, or are you dealing with it from some of the things that's going on right now in, in North Carolina? Because, you know, there's some real Neanderthals in North Carolina ben right Chavis now. Ben Oh, um, I thought you were talking about North Carolina. Yes, no, North Carolina. Ben it's Wilmington, North Carolina. Yes, it's Wilmington, North Carolina. And I'm familiar, very familiar with the Wilmington 10. We actually, it's a combination of all that, man. Um, it's a combination of what happened with the Wilmington 10 because a lot of what happened, the reason why a lot of people found out about 1898 was because when that whole Wilmington 10 situation went down. And that's what got the world watching, like, okay, what's what the hell is going on in Wilmington? And that's when a lot of people started talking about 1898. Before then, no one was even talking about the whole racial history and climate of Wilmington, before the Wilmington 10. CJ, so you come in late, and you didn't hear the preview. So, Jay, stop talking for a minute. You are required, this is required homework for you, to go to Wilmington on Fire, find out about the DVD, and the kids that you are guiding should be a, should see this film and know of this history. And 
it can help you in having your conversations and discussions with them about the nature of our of our protests for reparations for violations against us as a people and our humanity. You got that? See, BJ, I will be on it. I will be on it right now, and I'll just ask the gentleman this last question. Do you think that race relations in this country is getting any better? Because everybody now is promoting the biggest force in the world, diversity. Oh, man, honestly, I don't I – mean, I'm in the – you know, I'm a student of Dr. Claude Anderson. Until we own and control something, you know – we're we're pretty much yeah. It's race, race relations hasn't gotten any better. It's actually gotten worse. Black people and don't want to control is, anything. You know Jay we're we're getting victimized by police officers left and right. Okay. Until we get all these, you know, one of the things, and and I want my audience to know that I have a very big heart. Um, but here's Jay. Here's what we've got to take into our communities and start discussing. We let everybody in. Yep, we yep. got the we got the Korean market, we got the Chinese restaurants, we got the white owners and the Arab owners and the everybody else owners but us owners in our community. Yep. We let them come in, we do business with them, we let them talk to our elders and our children, our children as though they are not of uh, uh, humans, they they charge us prices they would never be able to charge in any other community. We look around. We got a liquor store across from the church. The church is sitting and doing nothing, and we need to fix that. We need to start demanding that our community has the economic uppance. Well, BJ, let me say this, and you know how much I love and respect you. I didn't say you, you. could and, say and, some and, more. No, no, no. I just, I just want to say this. We don't, we don't have, we don't have communities, BJ. That right there is a wrap. Like I told you, I live in Harlem, Harlem, and I've been in Charlie Wrangell's district for the last fifty years. Anytime I get up to go out to work 4.30 in the morning, and I see a Neanderthal walking her brother and sister, I know it's a wrap for me. We don't own no businesses in Harlem. We don't don't control anything in Harlem. But the illusion is that Charlie Rangel has done something for our people. No, no, BJ, we we don't have communities. And you know the sad thing is, we we are never gonna have communities because we're too displaced and we love white folks too much. And the fact that the matter is we don't have the discipline to come together and build a community and it could be done very quickly and I'll tell you how very shortly. Okay, but, and I'll but just tell you, it could be done no no, no let me tell you this. It could be done you strictly through fraternities and sororities who have the total skill set to come together and set up a community, and if they just patronize themselves, you could grow a community in 10 years. 
but they love white folks too much to ever let it happen. Talk to you soon. I don't know if the white folks is the impediment or if the immediacy of uh, enjoyment is the impediment. But thank you, Jay. Got to go to another caller. Love you much. Out up there in Harlem. <laughs> you can tell Chris Jay is Jay call Jay thinks he has a place on this microphone every week and he does. But well, you know the brother's Let's passionate, talk. you know, it's like you know, I yep. like that, you know, he's passionate but you know, he just needs to, you know. <laughs> but I get what he's saying. He makes a very good point. Well, he is moving from your Facebook page from my Facebook page to your Facebook page. Five oh two, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. His Parkinson's cock was sinking inside my vagina. He squirted. Wow. Oh, so we got the trolls. Yeah, yeah. I think he's in love with me. <laughs> oh, so this, this guy calls you. Know, he calls up all the time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I get those, too. Mm. I, I tell you. Chris, um, one of the things that um, I would like to do as you get part two ready for this, and and I know we've been saying it a lot, is I'd like to do a special with uh, Larry and and yeah. Sandy Darity and Marquetta, um, yeah. Claude Anderson, uh, to talk more about what this film means, how we can move this kind of history into the mainstream. And I'm ta- yeah. talking about the mainstream of education. I'm talking about in the mainstream of how we educate our community education uh, initiatives. Uh, for instance, uh, we do a lot, David Wilson and other people, Brotherhood, whatever the Brotherhood Initiative, Keep My Brother or whatever it is, um, that this film should be a part of the educational um, program credentials of those kinds of programs. We should be put, we should be taking these this film into I, I hope you all are listening. Um you know and it, it is imperative that we begin to think about this film should be in juvenile detention centers. It should be shown in our prisons. It should be shown in our local jails. Groups of, um, as Jay would say, the white people uh, who have the ability to engage in all of the social and economic activities of the lives of black people should see this film. Oh, yeah. It's better than Roots, folks. Oh yeah, it is <laughs> definitely better than a root. I said it, but not only with my film. I think people. It's Excuse a lot me. of the thing is is that um, it's a lot of good black films out here that a lot of people don't even know about. Like Wilmington on Fire, um, Tariq Nasheed's Hidden Colors series is one of them. Um, yes. He just uh-huh. came out with Hidden Colors Four, and his mm-hmm. his documentary series is one of the best, absolute best. Documentaries on African American on African history in general, African and African American history across mm-hmm. the globe, and people need to see that. You have a film called Black Friday by a guy named Rick Mathis, and it's about Black economic empowerment. It's a great film. So there's there's a lot of good 
films by some talented black filmmakers out here. You know, our, our community, we should stop bootlegging and, and actually supporting these artists so we can continue mm-hmm. to make more of these, these films. How are you protecting Wilmington on Fire from bootlegging? Um, right now I'm just keeping, like, just doing just my own screenings. But bootlegging is, is today, it, today is kind of inevitable because once I put the DVD out, it's really hard to control. You know, I pretty much mm-hmm. have to, I'm going off the faith of my own people. But, you know, Lord you just have, have to. Jesus, take yeah, your exactly. wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you want people to do the right thing, but you know how it is. You know, people, you know, yep. our people just won't do right sometimes. But a lot of times it's not even our own people a lot of times because I know Tariq talked about this on his show one time because, you know, mm-hmm. Hidden Colors is very popular. He said he had actually, I think, got a letter or a call from the government because they had stopped the shipment. It was a shipment from China, a whole shipment of, like, Hidden Colors movies. That they were bootlegging, sending from China. So, this once you become, uh, I guess, popular independently, and you're doing it yourself, Who's calling? you really, you really, really make a name for your product and your DVD and all that. It's not only the you know the brother on the corner selling it, but you'll even have big conglomerates trying to bootleg your stuff as well. So a lot of times it's not us. You also have white supremacy that will actually try to sabotage you as well. But mm-hmm. for Wilmington on Fire, how does that case, work in films? Um, pretty much bootlegging. Um, well, see, uh-huh. a lot of see, a lot of people don't realize is that you can have a lot of major companies that a lot of major companies actually bootleg a lot of their own films on the low. People just don't know about it. You know, they a lot of a lot of the major major bootleg shipments actually are actually produced by the major studios. They just do it low key. You remember in the Five mm-hmm. Heartbeats when? Um, yes. When the guy exposed Big Red and he was saying he was going to tell about him bootlegging CDs of, you know, music of his own artists, uh, film film studios, record labels, they do it all the time. You know, they'll do these bootleg things under underhand to undercut where they're getting money from the bootleg sales and the, the, the regular sales as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that, that's, that's very troubling. And the thing is that people think, oh, I'm, you know, they don't realize that they are one of a million who are buying bootleg products. I used to, I'm going to admit now, before before I started making my own movies, I used to buy bootlegs. (laughs) Oh, don't admit that. But once I, you know, started doing my own stuff and... You know, and I also started purchasing other artists, their work. And I was like, you know, I see why I'm buying this this DVD from them directly. Because if we want these type of films made, you know, artists, we have to eat. We have bills to get paid, you know, to be paid. If an artist is struggling and don't know how to get his bills paid or where he's going to get his next bill from, it's hard for him to be creative. You know what I'm saying? And it takes Uh money to also fund these projects. You know, if yeah, you like these yeah. projects where we're doing, especially being, you know, doing it independently, where you don't have white folks telling you, nah, you don't need to put that in the, in the film. You don't need to put these people in the film. You know, that's why supporting independent artists when they're doing film screens, when they have their DVDs out or T-shirts or posters, you know, support them. Because if you support them, they will constantly, you know, be able to make these type of films that you want to see. Yeah, you're 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 absolutely 
absolutely right. Um, I just, um, I I just think that I'm trying to read the the, the, the chat room. Um, I am not going to answer your calls anymore. You can oh, yeah. call on a thousand different telephone numbers. I'm yeah. not answering. Um, for those of you who are listening, if you would like to hear the messages of our troll for tonight, his number is 225-800-8217. Let me give out that number again. 225-800-8217. Alpha, take care of this clown for me, would you please? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually have people who email me, trolls who email me, Christopher, wow. with their legitimate email addresses. That's how dumb they are. Wow. Well, I guess, hey, you know, I guess well, what's, what's the saying, you know, if you don't have com. people like that, I guess you're not doing something right. The thing is, you, you're doing something right, you know. I guess so. So, yeah. um, one of the things that I do want to keep uh, talking about is this notion of how we extrapolate the events in 1889 in Wilmington, North Carolina, to events that we have witnessed all over this country. Um, from Ferguson to Tulsa to Rosewood, to even Baltimore. I mean, what the police did to protesters in Baltimore is beyond the realm. They can't, they have police officers who can't get indicted, who aren't getting indicted for killing a man, but a protester who is now going to be in jail for three years. The injustice meted out by the system is just unbelievable. And see, that's another reason why I decided to have people like Dr. Umar Johnson in the film, and he talks about this perfectly, because all these things you're describing, they all have one thing in in common, propaganda. Um, They use the same propaganda in 1898 like they're using now, and they use this propaganda to justify what they're about to do or what they're currently doing. And yeah. they did it back in 1898. They pretty much pretty much put out there to even white liberals, so they would get on the side of saying, "Wow, these black folks must have did something," you know. And okay. so yeah. even though I was for the black cause and black rights, I'm not now because you know it's just they're saying all these stories about you know a black man just raped a white woman, and I just can't stand for that. And so they deserve what they get. And you look fast forward to today. And you see the thing yeah. happened in Ferguson, Baltimore. It's that same propaganda. And I guess it goes back to the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So fix it. Exactly. I, the system is still using the same, you know, tactics and strategies that they've always done. Because it's like people keep falling for it, even our own people. Because the same thing happened in 1898. You had a lot of black people that actually blamed Alex Manley. You had a lot of black people that actually blamed other blacks who wanted to stand up against this white supremacy movement that was about to happen in Wilmington. They actually blamed them. So propaganda, a lot of times, 
it works more effectively if you get the the victim to blame themselves as well. Exactly. And I see that a lot happening today as well, where you have a lot of black people say, well, you know, they should do this. They need to pull the pants up or they need to just get a job and, you know, the police wouldn't have done that to them. You know, we, 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 hear, it. we hear it all the time. Yeah. Um, We've got some other people who are indicating that they want to talk with you, and I am not going to have my program impeded by jackasses. So I'm going to ask the question, what is the name of the young child, 12 years old, who was murdered by police in Cleveland, Ohio? Answer or hang up. I'm Fuck my you. tight little pussy. You see? Wow. Does this dude have a life? Or like yeah, do you have a life? I fucked his cock. Is this what's called a robocall? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, this but I'm not it. going to I'm not going oh, to wow. allow him who I've kicked out of our chat room and um to impede people who want to call this program. This is a talk show. We're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to say farewell to Christopher Everett at our common ground the film is wilmington on fire we will be right back for the wilmington race riot as they call it a wilmington massacre all these names it's called today took place you had people owning businesses in the heart of the city not off on a side street but the main drag, as we would say down south. Here with words, you had black business next to another black business next to another black business. You have Alex Manley running the newspaper so that there is actually a voice that can go out to people. People can subscribe to it. People who've left Wilmington and are elsewhere can get a hold of paper and know what's going on at home. You have the churches. You have fraternal organizations. You have all of this that the people are saying, look at who we are. And this is not even a whole generation. Hella shooting down, blood everywhere, a massacre, woman was on fire. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast. You don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another jet fight? As they. The best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics. 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 Friday night at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m., Alpha drills down deep. The lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. Truth Works Network. Truth Works. Truth Works Network Talk Radio. It's the Black Voice. Right here on Blog Talk Radio.
I'm Janet Graham. This is our phone. It would be my honor if you would join TruthWorks Network. I believe in truth. to remind you here at Our Common Ground, our support of independent media, uh, India Declare with the I Declare show on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. and the Alpha show on TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. every Friday night. He's serving hot grits with his politics, and we hope that you will support those broadcasts that are in your interest. India was definitely drilling down on the presidential election. She had, on Tuesday night, she had Donald Trump by the blonde, scraggly hair. And if you want to hear uh, analysis that just gets real raw, and right now it's I Declare show on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. Chris Everett. Um, I've got another idea for you uh, about this film. I just, I I mean, I cannot tell you how moved I was about this history. And I'm suggesting that Danny Glover, that all of the unions in North Carolina, AFGE and whoever else is in North Carolina, that you reach out to them. Uh, and ask labor to support this film, that you ask the Teachers Association. There used to be a Black Teachers Association, and and I think that the Black Teachers Association needs to be revamped and reorganized and start again because our children are left out in a deep black empty hole, not a black hole, empty hole, on their own history, and until we have generations, and one of the one of the reasons why young black people are not engaged is because we went for generations, allowing them to grow up not knowing this history. Yeah, you're right, you're right, and also and that's another reason why, you know, when you watch the film, you know, I know at the opening title credit sequence, you hear the hip hop music going. Um, I know mm-hmm. when. Um, when when I show when I show the film to like eighth graders and I see younger people in the audience, you know their head is bopping. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're into mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know they hear the song at the end of the film. It's a hip hop song as well. You know it kind of gets them in, engaged and interested in it. And that's why I wanted kind of to make this film combine the elements of hip hop and and also with you know a classical score. You know that you hear in basic documentaries as well because I wanted to really get the young people interested in, in learning their history and, and wanting to know because I you know I'm a young guy as well but I've always been fascinated of learning my history but you know a lot of mm-hmm. people just they didn't really want to talk about it you know but I always thought it was amazing like you know we did so many things I just want to know and especially you know in my own hometown or in my own you know state or whatever of knowing certain mm-hmm. things so it's a lot of well, young people me... that I find that yeah. a lot of young people want to know their history but just people aren't teaching it to them yeah, let me just say this to you: that the minute the, the DD, DVD goes on sale, just let me know. We'll be running a promo as to where yeah. people can yeah. buy it. 
Um, if you have a schedule, and we certainly can be running a promo uh, for Wilmington on Fire website so that people can go to the schedule and find out if it's coming someplace near them to see this film. I am just so excited to have you back again, and we have got to stay in touch. We can't let this long lag <laughs> Definitely. But I'll be in touch with you about the panel with uh, Dr. Claude Anderson and Dr. Sandy Darity and Marquetta and Larry. Yeah. And some of the descendants. Yeah, we we need to set that up. Chris, thank you so very much, and it's been a pleasure. Uh, And I feel so special that I have been able to have my special viewing uh, of this film. Uh, thank you for having me on. You know, thank you always for giving me a platform. You know, to to tell people about what I'm doing and and why I'm doing it as well. I really appreciate it. And if people want to follow the film, they can check us out at facebook.com/wilmingtononfire, facebook.com/wilmingtononfire, Twitter at wilmington1898, and instagram.com/wilmingtononfire. That's terrific. Thank you, and um, a happy Father's Day uh, to all of the men associated with you. I, I don't yeah, happy Father's Day to my grandfather that I wanted to say <laughs> right there. Oh, great. You know, he, he's, the great. Man, he's the man that raised me and made me the man who I am today. So happy Father's Day to Robert Everett. Thank you, Christopher Everett. It's Wilmington on Fire. It's just been a pleasure to to be able to um, uh, have uh, Christopher with us tonight. I do want to send out some special shout-outs to uh, Brother Brock, Brother YJ, uh, Alpho, Mr. India, um, and uh, Stephen, and, of course, my own dad, who I treasured. Uh, and continue to do so. We'll be right here at Our Common Ground, 10 p.m. Afia in One Gaza is going to be sitting in for me on next Saturday night. Uh, She's going to be talking about looking at a black radical future for black people, politically and socially. We hope that you will join us. Afia in One Gaza is... uh, international human rights activist. Uh, She chairs the Malcolm X Committee in uh, South Carolina. She is a broadcaster, and I hope that you will join her right here at Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us, and again, happy Father's Day. Have a great week. Good night. And and black folk as slaves, they knew the importance of wealth and owning and controlling it. And they wanted that 40 acres and a mule and $100. And, uh, and Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumpters, and Benjamin said that on the floor of the United States Congress in the 1865 Civil Rights Law. Give black folks 40 acres of mule and $100. And Andrew Johnson came, he became the president after Lincoln's assassination. He killed the bill. They came back again in 1866 again and said, black folks have to have resources to be able to compete. It's a massacre. Someone can steal game. So, what was the use in a park for us to just sit and remember? I want to remember, but I also want to progress to the future. Yeah. 
thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m., transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Make sure that you follow us on Twitter at Janice OCG and subscribe to our Facebook pages. I'm Janice Grant. And I'll be listening. But never the mind, never the grind. Kings and queens in my jeans. The red, white, and blue O's, the red, black, and green. They call them slaves. I call them heroes. Emancipated, but somebody.